From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello, and thanks for joining me today for your global news hour. On today's show, as India announces massive expansion in its coal fire power stations as the world's third largest electricity producer, we look at the absurdity of net zero as virtue signaling might look good in certain circles, but it harms its harms are far more reaching and a threat itself to humanity. Can the cure be worse than the disease? In the US, on the 60th anniversary of the assassination of its president, John F. Kennedy, still more than 60% of the American population don't believe the official narrative that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, meaning that the majority of Americans believe there was a conspiracy. We'll hear from Oliver Stone. The Dutch elections results are coming through and the right-wing party of Geert Wilders appears to have won the most seats, but may be unable to form a coalition government. But first today, in a much-needed boost for morale for the people of Gaza, the West Bank and Israel itself, there has been some consensus at last, with Israel and Hamas agreeing to a four-day ceasefire in the war in Gaza, a breakthrough that will facilitate the release of dozens of hostages held by militants, as well as Palestinians imprisoned by Israel, officials say. Still, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel would resume the war after the truce, keep fighting until we achieve all of our goals, including the destruction of Hamas fighting and governing abilities and the return of all hostages. The ceasefire temporarily freezes both sides in the war in place at a tenuous moment. Israeli troops hold much of northern Gaza and say they have dismantled tunnels and much of Hamas's infrastructure there. But Israeli officials acknowledge the group's infrastructure remains intact elsewhere. In recent days before the truce, Israel underlined that it was determined to take its ground offensive into the south. The ceasefire is due to commence at 10 a.m. Israeli time Thursday, about five hours from now on this live broadcast. With more, we get this update from Australian Channel 9. Outside military headquarters in Tel Aviv, families of hostages campaign for their return. After 47 days of heartache, some will soon get their wish. Today, bringing a major breakthrough, Israel's cabinet voting to approve a deal that will see 50 women and children return home. For them, every minute matters that we will honour the commitments made by the Israeli government. I can only hope that our enemies will do the same. Under the agreement with Hamas, fighting will pause for at least four days to allow for the staggered release of captives from Gaza. In return, Israel will free 150 Palestinian women and children from its jails. Hundreds more trucks will also be permitted to cross into Gaza, so fuel and humanitarian aid can be distributed across the territory. Meanwhile, dozens of people from the same family have been killed in the Jabalia refugee camp. The Palestinian foreign minister has said, as Israel continued to bombard the besieged Gaza Strip in the hours after, an agreement was reached for a truce that was expected to go into effect Thursday. The Palestinian foreign minister, Riyad al-Maliki, said on a visit to London Wednesday that 52 members of one family were killed in the refugee camp in northern Gaza. Only this morning, from the Kudura family in Jabalia, 52 people have been wiped out, completely killed, he said. I have the list of names, 52 of them. They were wiped out completely from grandfather to grandchildren. In southern Gaza, Al Jazeera's Tariq Abu Azum said that the heavy strikes continued on Wednesday in the lead up to the humanitarian pause. These areas are considered to be safe places to flee from the north, he said, 
after an Israeli strike left a residential building in Khan Yunus completely destroyed. But they are experiencing the same level of Israeli bombardments. Separately in Khan Yunus, the bodies of more than 100 Palestinians originally held at the Al-Shifa hospital in northern Gaza, which had been repeatedly raised by Israeli forces, were buried in a mass grave. The agreement between Israel and Hamas, the Palestinian armed group that governs Gaza, comes after nearly seven weeks of war in the besieged territory that has killed thousands and displaced hundreds of thousands of others. Key details on the agreement remain unclear, but it is expected to include the release of 50 civilian hostages, the release of 150 Palestinians detained in Israeli prisoners and a four-day halt to hostilities in Gaza. The pause is expected to coincide with an influx of the humanitarian aid in the besieged enclave. And UN Chief Antonio Guterres described the agreement as an important step in the right direction, but added that much more needs to be done to end the suffering. As news of the ceasefire for a hostage and prisoner exchange between Palestinians and Israel, there is incredible anticipation from those who have missing loved ones, either as hostages or prisoners. Despite this feeling of possibility, much nervous apprehension abounds whether some or all of these people will actually be freed or if something could prevent the ceasefire. Reporting from Nablus, here is Zain Basravi explaining the feeling on the ground in the West Bank. Balata refugee camp in Nablus, the most populated in the occupied West Bank. Scarcely a wall not covered in bullet holes. Residents normally prepare for Israeli raids. Now they wait for news of a homecoming. Asila Titi has been in prison for over a year, accused of trying to stab a guard while visiting her brother in jail. Her family has a long history of suffering and resisting Israeli occupation. They say she was targeted. They say the allegations are bogus. Our uncle was killed and our brother was shot while Asil was in prison. She doesn't know. When she's released, she'll see life has changed. Yes, we're happy, but it's definitely incomplete. But her family knows even a bittersweet reunion is not guaranteed. Names are on a list, but who gets to leave and when remains in Israeli hands. There is excitement and anticipation. People are looking forward to the possible return of a loved one. But we've also met people who say that they are dreading getting their hopes up in case it doesn't happen. One thing that is common across the board, something everyone has said to us, is that whatever happiness may be coming their way, it will remain incomplete, so long as the people of Gaza continue to suffer. Meanwhile, Changpeng Zhao, the founder of Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, has stepped down as CEO and pled guilty to violating anti-money laundering laws. The deal with the US Department of Justice is part of a larger settlement that involves several federal agencies and will include fees or fines of more than $4 billion, the DOJ said Tuesday. The announcement is the latest blow to the cryptocurrency industry, which has been marred by a series of scandals and investigations that have unearthed fraudulent behaviour by central players and firms. Cryptocurrency has also come under scrutiny as a tool used by illicit groups to circumvent global financial safeguards. Zhao, a Canadian national, pled guilty to one count of failure to maintain an effective anti-money laundering program. Binance became the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange in part because of the crimes it committed. Now it is paying one of the largest corporate penalties in US history, Attorney General Merrick Garland said. In just the past month, the Justice Department has successfully prosecuted the CEOs of two of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges in two separate criminal cases. The message here should be clear. Using new technology to break the law does not make you a disruptor. It makes you a criminal, Garland said. 
Acting U.S. Attorney Tessa Gorman for the Western District of Washington said that because Zhao knowingly operated a financial platform without basic anti-money laundering safeguards, the company caused illegal transactions between U.S. users and users in sanctioned jurisdictions such as Iran, Cuba, Syria and Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine, transactions for which Binance profited with significant fees. Prosecutors have said that as part of the settlement, Binance will pay fees of $1.81 billion, a forfeiture of $2.5 billion, and personal payments from Zhao of about $50 million. Zhao's plea agreement also bars him from all involvement with Binance, a Cayman Islands-based limited liability company. The founder has previously faced charges of diverting customer funds, Binance turned a blind eye to its legal obligations in the pursuit of profit. Its willful failures allowed money to flow to terrorists, cyber criminals and child abusers through its platform, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said. Any institution, wherever located, that wants to reap the benefits of the US financial system must also play by the rules that keep us all safe from terrorists, foreign adversaries and crime will face the consequences. Whilst crime is crime, the virtual wipeout of the world's two largest crypto companies, FTX and Binance, at least from a trust standpoint, opens up a very convenient pathway for central banks to introduce their own digital currency platforms, albeit without one very important feature for many, privacy and anonymity from prying authorities where everyone is assumed to be guilty before innocent. And New York Governor Kathy Hochul said that there is no evidence that the crash and explosion on Wednesday on the US side of the Rainbow Bridge, which connects the US to Canada at Niagara Falls, New York, was a terrorist attack. She also told reporters at a news conference she said there was no indication any explosives were found at the scene. Earlier Wednesday, the vehicle sped towards the border checkpoint on the US side of the bridge, hit a booth, flew and exploded when it went airborne. You actually had to look at it and say, was this generated by AI? Because it was so surreal to see how high in the air this vehicle went and then the crash and explosion and fire. She said the driver and passenger were killed. According to the governor, one of the victims was a Western New York resident. She said one booth agent was injured in the incident, was treated for injuries at a hospital. They were released later in the day. It was a very congested area, Hockle said, adding it could be very cataclysmic. She also added that the investigation would take some time as much of the vehicle was destroyed and debris was scattered over 13 booths. There isn't a license plate, she said. Investigators have some form of suitcase or briefcase on the scene, sources told ABC News. They were treating it as a possible explosive device as a precaution and the bomb squad is handling the package. The Rainbow Bridge has remained closed for the day in the wake of the incident. Ron Rhinus, the general manager of the Buffalo and Fort Erie Public Bridge Authority, told ABC News all four Canada-US bridges over the Niagara River had been closed out of an abundance of caution while the Rainbow Bridge investigation continued. The Buffalo-Niagara International Airport said it would increase security with car checks and additional screenings for travellers. Meanwhile, President Biden has been briefed on the explosion and is closely following developments, according to the White House. And Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau informed the country's parliament that they were looking into the incident. With more, we join this report from ABC News, where Justin Trudeau is speaking before the Canadian parliament. We are in close contact with U.S. officials and will continue to work closely with them. Uh, we will continue to be engaged. We will provide updates. Uh, updates I can give right now is there are four border crossings that are right now closed. The Rainbow Bridge, Whirlpool Bridge, Queenston Bridge and Peace Bridge. Uh, additional measures are being uh, contemplated and activated at all border crossings across the country. Uh, we are taking this extraordinarily seriously. The Canadians are going to be interested in finding out, you know, who was in the car. Were they Canadian citizens? Were they
they, uh, you know, were they up to no good or, or, or were they up to even criminal activity? And, and, and what's that about? And, and how were they stopped? What were the circumstances? Uh, but you heard the Prime Minister say out of an abundance of caution, all the bridges linking the U.S. and Canada over the Niagara River are now temporarily shut down. They'll reopen. These are major thoroughfares. They're not going to stay closed for, forever. But, but while the authorities figure out what caused this vehicle to explode and why, uh, they're, they're going to be uh, quite cautious here. Those first checkpoints, they're, they're, um, they're trained to see something out of normal or something that needs further investigation as it, as it conduct an interview. They won't do it there. They'll, they'll push them over to the, uh, to the, uh, to the center, you know, the, uh, violate the, 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 the bridge, excuse me, uh, to do that. So they're going to try uh, and that's, that's normal SOP. That's what they're going to do. So something they saw, and it could be routine that they did that thing. Let's go talk to these people. Go over there. That that again could have could have um, put into the mind of the driver. I'll, I'll, all of a sudden, I'm going to get stopped. So let me change my behavior in a bad way. So that's what I'm saying right now. We need to talk to that first person who saw something and saw something unusual, or or needed something other than that to push them over for further investigation. That person is going to be key to tell us what do you see. What, the, what was what was key about that? That with no children in the car didn't look like a holiday situation. So let's go talk to them. Maybe they were on business. Maybe we need to know more. The fact that it was a Mercedes is also could be revealing as well. Was it a rented car? We don't know. Right wing party for freedom has taken a commanding lead in the Dutch general election, winning thirty five parliamentary seats compared to the Green Labour Alliance's twenty six, according to an early exit poll. Released half an hour after voting closed on Wednesday night, the poll showed the PVV winning 35, Green Labor 26, and retiring Prime Minister Mark Rutter's People's Party for Freedom and Democracy taking 23. The newly formed new social contract, a centrist party, is projected to come in fourth with 20 seats. Should the results remain unchanged, the PVV will emerge as the largest faction in Parliament. The party won 17 seats in 2021's general election, losing some of the right-wing vote to the then-ascendant Forum for Democracy. However, Wednesday's exit poll showed the FVD on track to lose five of its eight seats. PVV leader Geert Wilders published a video of himself celebrating, exclaiming 35 as the results were broadcast on the Netherlands NOS network. Despite Wilders' jubilation, he will likely be unable to form a government as most of the Netherlands' mainstream parties have ruled out working with the PVV. Wilders' party supports restrictions on Muslim immigration and the closure of mosques. Although Wilders toned down his usually fiery rhetoric in the run-up to this year's vote. And speaking via video link, Russian President Vladimir Putin criticised unwise economic decisions taken by governments, including those defended as necessary to fight the effects of the pandemic, have led to global economic turmoil. The injection of trillions of dollars and euros into the economy, into the banking system, ultimately provoked a surging global inflation, a rapid increase in food and energy prices. This is precisely what lies at the heart of the events that he mentioned, turbulence in the global economy, not our actions and our attempts to achieve justice in Ukraine. No, according to Putin. According to the president, such policies have also led to higher interest rates, which have hit the poorest countries the most. Moscow stands for the rebuilding of open and mutually beneficial international economic cooperation based on the principles of the UN Charter and of collegial and mutually respectful teamwork. He stated, according to Putin, it is important to achieve effective optimization of the system of global economic management, namely to restart the World Trade Organization in full, including its arbitration function. Putin also stressed the importance of increasing the role of developing economies in international financial institutions, including the IMF and World Bank. 
according to the Russian leader, it is critical to use the resources of these organisations in the interests of the development of countries and regions that are truly in need and not for the opportunistic political purposes. We are ready to work together to solve the problems of the economic agenda with the G20, as well as other international institutions, including the BRICS, the weight influence of which is obviously growing, especially taking into account the process of its expansion. He concluded, and coming up after the break, the woes of the Biden administration continue as the people are revolting. This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I'm a native New Yorker. I've lived here most of my life. I love the energy. I love all the cultural opportunities. I love just the street scene, but not anymore. New York, to use Donald Trump's famous phrase, is now a shithole. Warren Wilhelm, Bill de Blasio, and Eric Adams destroying the legacy in in just a few short years of Rudy Giuliani and Bloomberg. We had low crime, we had booming tourism, we had booming business. Even with the 9-11 terrorist attacks, business in New York, it rebounded, it was booming. We've got beautiful, gleaming new apartment buildings. It breaks my heart to see what has been done to my native state, whose motto, Excelsior, means ever upward. But these last 20 years, unfortunately, they've been ever downward, again, not by accident, all by design. And what's the root of the problem? The root of the problem is our crooked elections. The Timothy Shea Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40. California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%, you know, 99.8% survival, rather than the 3 or 4% mortality that the, the people were saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get 
rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them. This is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. From world news to global policies and beyond, this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. In what is probably not a shock, some 60% of Americans think that President Joe Biden helped and participated in his son's foreign business dealings, according to a Harvard-Harris poll published Monday. Republican lawmakers are currently investigating Biden's alleged influence peddling and will soon decide whether to impeach the president. According to the survey, 81% of Republicans, 39% of Democrats and 59% of independent voters agree that Biden helped and participated in his son's business. The president and his son both scored low favorability ratings in the survey, with 55% of respondents having an unfavorable or very unfavorable view of Hunter Biden and 48% holding the same view of his father. Reports of Biden's involvement in his son's dealing first surfaced during or before actually the 2020 election when the New York Post published files from Hunter's laptop suggesting that business people from China, Ukraine, Russia and other countries paid Hunter for access to his father during the elder's time as vice president. Hunter's former business partner, Devin Archer, told a congressional hearing in July that Hunter's position on the board of Burisma, the Ukrainian energy firm, was given to him solely to guarantee that the company would have influence over US policy. Archer also alleged that Biden dined multiple times with Hunter's clients and that Hunter received money transfers immediately after at least two of the meetings. And former US House Speaker Kevin McCarthy opened an impeachment inquiry into Biden's alleged profiteering in September. And earlier this month, current Speaker Mike Johnson said that the GOP will decide very soon whether to formally prosecute the president. And a former mayor and mentee, friend of Pete Buttigieg, Patrick Wojan, has been sentenced to 30 years in prison for the exploitation of 500 children. Crickets from the Biden White House, of course. He pled guilty to over 100 counts of possession and distribution of child sexual abuse material. Rojan was serving as mayor of the College Park up until last March when he resigned to deal with his own mental health. The former mayor's husband, Dave Collisar, is standing by him and arguing that he's a good person. In spite of everything, I continue to look up to him. To my husband, I want to say I love you. Back in 2019, Wojad called Buttigieg his buddy and said that he was even mentored by the now Secretary of Transportation. I actually met Mayor Pete shortly after I was elected mayor in 2015. Went to the US Conference of Mayors winter meeting in DC in January of 15 and was assigned to be my buddy, Wojan said in the 2019 interview. I can now serve in a leadership role as Vice Chair of Civil Livability and Bicycling, in part due to his mentorship. Here is CBS's Baltimore dedicating an entire 20 seconds to this conviction of yet another person who should never have been in power. Well, today, a judge will sentence the former mayor of College Park, Patrick Wohan, who pled guilty to 140 child porn charges in August. Police say Wohan was using an anonymous account on the messaging app Kick to upload multiple videos of kids being sexually abused. We're told there will be a press conference after the sentencing as well. Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock has sparked backlash for suggesting that Australians going for haircuts and dentist visits are to blame for high inflation. Hinting that further interest rate pain may be on the way to tackle homegrown inflation, the central bank chief said on Wednesday that domestic factors were the dominant driver of the cost of living crisis. The comments sparked angry and mockery on social media, breaking 
Bald people lead the fight against inflation. Former independent member of parliament, Tony Windsor, wrote on X. One user commented, just read that the RBA governor is lashing out at people for having dental treatments and haircuts. Damn, guilty as charged. I go to the dentist every year and have to have an extra minor procedure this year. I'm planning on getting a haircut this week. Another woman said, this is the most ridiculous nonsense I believe I have ever heard from an economist. Michelle Bullock also wants us to visit the dentist less. I mean, Australia can possibly cope with bad hair, but bad teeth, madness. And he noted that the large corporations, including the big banks and supermarkets, were raking in billions of dollars in profits. Others highlighted Australia's record immigration intake as a driving factor. Labor's mass immigration boosts aggregate demand, one wrote, without the ability to service its means, inflation. Labor doesn't care about this or rate rises, of course. Bullock's comments to the Australian Business Economists Network in Sydney continue in her predecessor's tradition of tone-deaf statements. Philip Lowe, who departed the role in September, made headlines with a series of out-of-touch public statements during the RBA's crushing series of rate rises, including suggesting Aussies simply work more and spend less. The new governor absolutely smashing it in her quest to be even more unpopular than Phil Lowe, wrote the Sydney Morning Herald's as Stephanie Peatling. Bullock's declaration comes as the RBA mulls the need for further rate rises to slow the economy and bring inflation currently running at 5.4% back to its 2 to 3% target band. And Pakistan could join the BRICS Economic Alliance next year. The country's newly appointed ambassador, Russia, Mohammed Khalid Jamali, said in an interview with TASS news agency on Wednesday. He said the country has already applied for membership and is counting on Russia's assistance with the admittance process. Russia will assume the chairmanship of BRICS in 2024. Pakistan would like to be part of this important organisation, and we are in the process of contacting member countries in general, and the Russian Federation in particular for extending support to Pakistan's membership, the ambassador stated. In an interview with the China Media Group last month, Vladimir Putin said the expansion of BRICS was based on the global multipolarity principle. According to Putin, no nation wants to be on the sidelines and act on the whim of some sovereign. BRICS is a platform where countries can form relations on the basis of equality. And coming up after the headlines, the 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK, more than 60% of the US population did not accept his killer acted alone. You'll hear from filmmaker Oliver Stone. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Now, TNT Radio News. Show them how it's done. Let's go. I, I got news for you. News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Authorities say there is no indication a vehicle explosion at a border checkpoint on a bridge in Niagara Falls was a terrorist attack. Security footage shows a speeding car losing control and becoming airborne before launching into a booth and bursting into flames. New polling out of the US shows almost half of Americans are now fed up with Washington sending their hard-earned money to Ukraine. And the planned ceasefire in Gaza has been delayed. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. Today in the United States was the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Historians of the assassination of the president divide into two camps. There are those who accept the official version provided by the Warren Commission that a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, was responsible for the murder and was himself assassinated by Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby before he could face trial. There are those who subscribe to one of the various conspiracy theories. The term apt 
because it was created by the CIA to mock anyone who did not accept the Warren Commission report, which was filled with flaws. The most famous of those conspiracy theories emerged at the end of 1991 when the film JFK by Maverick director Oliver Stone was released. The film received eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. The movie told the true story of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, played by Kevin Costner, who brought a case against businessman Clay Shaw for conspiracy in Kennedy's murder. Stone used the film to develop the idea that the assassination represented a coup. In the film, generals and the CIA plot Kennedy's murder as they were enraged with Kennedy's Cold War policies, particularly with what Stone portrayed as his plan to withdraw from the Vietnam War. Here is Oliver Stone speaking to Joe Rogan about the murdered, murdered president and also his thoughts today, more than 30 years after making the film, who he thinks is really responsible. We're paying for it to this day because I think Mr. Kennedy was one of the really on the road to being a great president. I think he did a lot of great things that people don't even know. And we put that in the documentary, what he was actually doing in Africa, mm -hmm. people don't know, what he was doing around the world in Asia, in Cuba, obviously, South America, what his plans were. People don't understand that there was a big divide between Lyndon Johnson, who he, he was about to get rid of him as vice president for the next election. There was a big divide in thinking between Kennedy and Johnson. Kennedy was without doubt pulling out of the war. There was a directive, we, we, we bring it up in the, from the uh, a, a SECDEF conference in Hawaii from earlier that year. He was pulling out. He made that very clear. I'm not going to you know, get sued because they're all right. dead, but I think that Alan Dulles has to be looked at a lot closer. And I think he, he was no longer in the CIA, but he had a tremendous amount of influence. And I think he needed some organized, very organized top people to help him. So I think it could have been a group of people that were involved, and maybe involving certain people in the Pentagon too, because there was an awful lot of strange things that happened. Yeah, he certainly had some ideas that didn't jive well with the, the people that were in power. Dulles was fired by Kennedy. Let's call it yeah, call a spade a spade, which yeah. had never been done. Right. This was a shock uh, to the American way of government. I mean, we come from a pro-military system, and here was Kennedy questioning it. And then, uh, you know, when after he was killed, I mean, it was insane for Lyndon Johnson to appoint him to the Warren Commission, mm. where he managed to control pretty much the hearings and who, who was heard, who wasn't right. heard, and what the CIA was delivering to the... It was a joke. It was transparent, a joke. There's a, a couple things that are a joke. Arlen Specter being the guy who comes up with the magic bullet theory is another joke. Yeah. Now, three decades after the Kennedy assassination and partly due to the success of Stone's film, the US Congress passed a law mandating the release of all assassination-related material. The collection comprises over 5 million pages of state files, photos, recordings and artefacts. Public scepticism about what actually happened in Dallas was high, despite the official inquiry by the Warren Commission publishing its 888-page report and 26 volumes of evidence in 1964. In an attempt to curb conspiracy theories, the JFK Records Act made it law for the US government to disclose all of its records, apart from the items vital to national security. 60 years later, that national security argument wears thin because whilst 99% of the records are now public, with less than a month ago, a handful of the final files were released by the US President Biden. Yet the notion that more government information enables better public understanding 
confronts the fact that more than 60% of Americans continue to believe Oswald didn't act alone, which was the result of the Warren Commission outcome. Whilst we focus on who killed JFK, what we must not forget is who this president was and what he stood for, for which may explain why 60 years later, so many people just can't let go. Here is a short collection of five of his most famous speeches. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. When no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and when no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean, and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave, or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, The kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living. The kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Many argue that Kennedy, who was just 46 when he was murdered, was at the time 
that America lost its innocence. And coming up after the break, as India is currently building more coal-fired power than Australia produces entirely, we look at the absurdity of net zero and the lengths at which the global globalists will go to to push their agenda. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I used to work for the once great AccuWeather. I don't know if any of you know the history of AccuWeather, but it was started by a brilliant meteorologist, a pioneer in his field, Dr. Joel Myers. And his philosophy was simple. Let me get the best forecasters and put them under one roof and then let them compete against each other. And so what happened was when AccuWeather started in the 70s and 80s, it was like the New York Yankees of weather. It was unbelievable. But as time went by, things have changed. Joel is long retired, for instance, and now they are one of the main media outlets, I call them meteorological misinformation media, that continues to whip the hysteria. Now, my bias against that is the fact that I used to work for them, and there were so many great people that I learned from there. And I don't know what they think about what they see now, but there's one climate article after another coming out. But you know something? I'm being too harsh on them because there's a poll on Twitter by me if you want to go look, the American Storm, and you're more than welcome to vote on it. That says only 3% of people responding say that they drive climate hysteria the most. Guess who is winning hands down? The Weather Channel, 40.6%. Behind them, the New York Times, 30.5%. So the Washington Post is in there at 25.9%. So these articles, and apparently they just appear in front of me every morning. Whenever I open up my computer, there's a bunch of them that just flash on. I gotta not let them bother me. Obviously, no one's really looking at that. They're looking at the Weather Channel, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And believe me, they're beating the drum like mad. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands, heal our waters, and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love, and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters, and wild species. The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. Welcome back. Here's a fun fact for you. Since the beginning of COVID, India has added more people to its population than the entire populations of Australia and New Zealand combined. How about that? The Indian government has asked private companies to boost investments in new coal-fired plants to meet the country's growing demand for energy. Reuters reported this week the power minister, Raj Kumar Singh, held a meeting with private firms and urged them to not miss the growth opportunity and build more coal-fired power capacity, the outlet said, citing officials familiar with the matter. The country's demand will rise to 335 gigawatts by 2030, compared to the current 240 gigawatts, according to the latest estimates. 
India, one of the world's top carbon emitters, has about 27 gigawatts of coal-based power plants under construction and another 24 gigawatts of capacity in pre-construction stages, according to Singh. For comparison, India's current installed capacity is 416 gigawatts, compared to Australia producing 23. Power demand during peak consumption hours can only be met by burning and coal, since storage technologies are costlier to support solar and wind-based energy generation. According to a recent government report, India will remain heavily dependent on coal as the largest source of power generation for the next decade, even with its attempts to ramp up renewable energy projects. The absurdity of climate change and net zero as usual. Problem, reaction, solution. India is the world's most populous nation with more than 1.4 billion people and one of the world's largest emitters, except it has no real plans to stop polluting. Yet Australia, for example, is determined to go green at any price. The climate zealots of the Greens and Labor see this opportunity to create a lasting legacy, only that legacy is not the one that they think it is. Here is broadcaster Alan Jones explaining the absurdity in both overall terms and Australian terms. What is causing climate change? Is it carbon dioxide? Uh, Yes, um, carbon dioxide pollution is a major contributor. Okay, so can I ask you, this is not a, a trick question, what percentage of the Earth's air is carbon dioxide? Oh, I don't know. And I say, hang on, you don't know what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and yet you're prepared to stand the economy on its head to address a problem, the detail of which you don't know. So when I then explain that the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, Alice, is how much? Alice, how much of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? To answer Alice? the question, Scott Morrison has said he Al- believes Alison, in climate much? change Alice, and that much? he wants to do something about Alice, it. Alice, how much carbon dioxide is the problem? How much carbon dioxide is there in the atmosphere? I'm not a scientist. I don't oh. know. I'm well, a well hang on. If you're going to argue the case, you ought to know. It's 0.04 of a percent. And of that 0.04 of a percent, human beings around the world create 3%. And of that 3%, Australia creates 1.3%. But if carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere and human beings are responsible for 3%, of that 0.04%, and Australia's responsible for 1.3% of the 3% of the 0.04%, it's like saying there's a granule of sugar on the Harbour Bridge. Clean the bridge up, it's dirty. Numbers Jones quoted equates to is that for every one million parts of any air sample in this country all the way up into the atmosphere, just 1.56 of the one million is created by human carbon pollution, or 999,998 parts per million are not. This would mean that if there were no humans, then the Earth would heat up as a natural phenomenon. For balance, Alex Epstein argues that the net zero approach is absurd and indeed reckless. How can you move 8 billion people from an energy source they depend upon to another that does not yet exist? When human beings are productive, then the, we experience the world as abundant and safe. And the mistake people make is to think that's natural. So they think, oh, the world I'm in today, that's natural. And so all I'm worried about is doing new things like climate change to affect it adversely. What they don't realize is that it's unnaturally livable because of all the fossil fuel machines. And if they stop working or work less, then the whole world as we know it collapses. And this happens in any era, but in particular, an era where you have 8 billion people, like the world does does not naturally support 8 billion people. Like, you know, you historically had hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. So it's really scary situation. And we're actually seeing it with like fertilizer prices and things to take a fossil fueled world that is is that is relying on fossil fuels to be amazing 
and that 8 billion people depend on, and then to really try to defuel it and say, oh, I think this solar and wind will work. Like the, the recklessness there is the level of reckless. The people think it's reckless to increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% to 0.04%. That's not reckless. The world has had 15 times more CO2 and life thrived and it might be a different world, but it's it's a livable world for sure. It is totally reckless and unprecedented to defuel a fossil fueled world that 8 billion people depend on without a replacement. We're seeing a microcosm of that in Europe. We're seeing that with agriculture. And so it is a an obviously dangerous experiment. And I'm, I want to stop that experiment now. I don't want to get toward what they want, which is let's eliminate all fossil fuels by 2050. And yet, even though we don't have any replacements now, I, I you know, we have some environmentalist organization told me we're going to have a replacement. So we should shut all the fossil fuels down and then hopefully something will replace. However, our globalist entwined uniparty politicians, those of the left and the right, who only argue about subjects that they are not going against our globalist unelected Policymakers like the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization care little for this impractical reality, leaving many to eventually perish or fend for themselves after spending decades making their constituents, or is that subservience, dependent on the government for everything in the socialised model outlook for a one-world government. Here is Australian Senator Ralph Babette reading this absurdity into the parliamentary Hansard. Now, to all the Australian farmers, miners and traders out there, I'd like to welcome you to the dystopian world of net zero, a world brought to you by the Liberals, Nationals, Labor and the Greens. Now, let me inform you of the wonders of the only electric ute currently available for sale in Australia for 93 grand, nearly 93 grand, plus on-road costs. You can drive away in a brand new, made in China, LDV ET60. Doesn't that just sound appealing? Are you dreaming of weekends away camping, caravanning or boating? Forget it. This beauty has a towing limit of 1,000 kilograms and is only available in two-wheel drive with a range of under 200 kilometres when towing or carrying a load. Now, instead of asking the salesman, the salesman for free floor mats, better ask him to throw in a free diesel generator and a jerry can. How's about that one instead? Not convinced? Here is the kicker. It's carbon neutral. How good is that, right? As long as you ignore the 3,000 kilograms of steel, copper, lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, graphite, zinc, and all the rest of it. And don't forget to turn a blind eye to the coal-fired power used in the Chinese factory, the diesel trains, the trucks, the ships that are used for transport and the fossil fuels that you're going to use when you charge it at night in the comfort of your own garage here in Australia. Now, virtue signalling, you know what it is? It's an expensive business. We've got to reject net zero because it makes net zero sense. Net zero is a total and complete and utter scam designed to shut down our nation, enrich predatory globalists and the CCP. That is all it's going to do. Here is Wef Darling and John Kerry, who is Joe Biden's climate czar, explaining how net zero cannot be achieved whilst agriculture contributes one third of all carbon emissions. Agriculture contributes about 33% of all the emissions of the world, uh, depending a little bit on how you count it, but it's anywhere from 26 to 33. And we can't get to net zero. We don't get this job done unless agriculture 
is front and center as part of the solution. But with a growing population on the planet, we just crossed the threshold of eight billion fellow citizens around the world. We just crossed that in this last year. Emissions from the food system alone are projected to cause another half a degree of warming by mid-century on the current course that we are today. A two degree future could result in an additional 600 million people not getting enough to eat. And you just can't continue to both warm the planet while also expecting to feed it. Doesn't work. So we have to reduce emissions from the food system to keep the 1.5 degrees alive. Why do we have to keep 1.5 degrees alive? Because scientists, as a basis of physics and mathematics, not ideology and politics or party labels or anything else, as a matter of physics and mathematics and some biology and chemistry have told us, these are the consequences. And we already see it happening. And almost everything they've predicted for 30 plus years now is coming true, but the problem is it's coming true faster and bigger. But science, where have we heard that before? So instead, there's Bill Gates' plastic meat whilst he buys up all the farms. Well, there's another option, according to World Economic Forum bioethicist Matthew Liao. That's a contradiction in terms, the World Economic Forum and ethics. But hey, all governments worship at the altar of Klaus claims that Dr. Frankenstein's that humans should be genetically modified to induce an intolerance to meat in order to save us from climate change. The last thing I'll say is just the human engineering. I think that with this, with, with this ability to synthesize human uh, genome, we can actually do a lot of things. There's actually a lot of opportunities for this to solve big world problems. So uh, one thing is the climate change. And there, uh, I'll just use, um, you know, sort of climate change is really big problem. We don't really know how to solve it, but it turns out that we can use human engineering to help us address climate change. So I'll give two examples. So one is that uh, people eat too much meat, right? And if they were to cut down on their consumption on meat, then they would, uh, it would actually really help the planet. Uh, but people are not willing to give up meat. Yeah, you know, some people will be willing to, but other people, they may be willing to, but they sort of, they have a weakness of will. They say, wow, this, this steak is just too juicy. I can't do it. I, I'm one of those, by the way. So, you know, but so here's the thought, right? So it turns out that we know a lot about, so there, we have these intolerance to, uh, so I, for example, I have milk intolerance. I'm, uh, and there's some people are intolerant to crayfish. So possibly we can use hu human engineering to make it the case that we're intolerant to certain kinds of meat, to certain kinds of bovine, uh, bovine proteins. And there's actually analogs of this in life. There's this thing called the long star tick, where if it bites you, you will become allergic to meat. Uh, I can sort of describe the mechanism. So that's something that we can do through human engineering. We can kind of uh, possibly address really big world problems through human engineering. Building an intolerance, a permanent terminal intolerance to globalism at this stage, that is what counts for bioethics. Now, I hear some say that it's not possible. They cannot be so obvious and so deceitful. How could this be so? Let's cross back now to the World Economic Forum for this chestnut. Instead of educating the general public about the science that Kerry talked about, this time the science of vaccines, let's just get them to comply without it. Two of the countries which were most successful in getting good coverage of vaccination, 
base this not at all on getting their citizens to try and understand the signs. One is Bhutan, which, uh, where they were very successful in preparing a campaign and involved. They asked, they, they were sensitive to the country's needs, to the citizens' needs, involved in informing the religious establishment and in fact using them in finding the right time and date. And they got fantastic coverage. No signs was explained. The other example I know of um, is Portugal, where the um, campaign was handed to a retired army general. And the army general just treated the country as his troops and he rallied the troops. He declared it as a war that the country in patriotic passion was going to fight together. And they had up there, I think they were leading in Europe, if not the world. So no science. No science, hey? Do you think this would explain the carefully executed plan to dumb us all down? After all, the population explosion was well documented throughout modern history. It's not like they just thought of it. So not all politicians are asleep, though. Let's give the last word to Croatian member of the European Parliament, Mislav Kalakusic. I would like uh, shortly to bear um, people from upcoming uh, danger for humanity. The World Health Organization wants all countries to sign an agreement on handing over the authority to declare a pandemic, procure vaccine and drugs. It will be healthier and safer for humanity to sign agreement with the Colombian drug cartel. They know all about drugs for sure. During the COVID pandemic, World Health Organization only told lies. It should be declared a terroristic organization. They lie. That is a new and known virus. That is possible to make an effective vaccine. That the vaccine is 82% effective. That is protects against serious illness and deaths. That all, of course, were foolish and lies. Today, World Health Organization is more dangerous for humanity than World Economic Forum. Well said. Reuters report on Tuesday said that the growing popularity of two types of hybrid vehicles, that is plug-in hybrids or PHEVs, and extended range hybrids or EREVs made by Chinese automakers have affected sales of internal combustion models and also gasoline hybrid vehicles, HEVs, a segment that Toyota pioneered with the Prius in the late 1990s. Sales of HEVs in China, where Toyota still dominates with four top selling models, tumbled 15% while gasoline car sales dropped 11%, according to the Reuters report. Meanwhile, Japanese automakers have been competitive in the HEV field, where the likes of Toyota have a sizable lead. Against this backdrop, Chinese auto firms found another path by focusing more on the PHEV technological route, represented by products of Shenzhen-based BYD, a new energy vehicle startup, Li Auto. Sales of the HEVs in the Chinese market are only one quarter of those of the PHEVs, and the former share has been falling. Yale Zhang, Managing Director at Consultancy Automotive Foresight, told the Global Times on Tuesday, compared with domestic plug-ins, Japanese HEV products lack advantages in terms of prices and tax breaks, he noted, adding that the latter changes charges a higher premium. And since 2022, PHEVs, including the EREVs, have shown a super strong growth trend in China and contributed to a huge increase in NEV sales as a whole, becoming the core growth driver for the overall auto market. Well, that 
that concludes today's edition of Compass. Coming up next is Chris Smith. This is Jason Olborn for TNT Radio. Listener.